special Fanatsu episode. Uh, we're blessed with the presence of uh, Vince Diaz, a widely recognized Pacific scholar. Uh, he just finished his talk on um, well, decolonizing the Disneyfication of Moana and other, uh, other um, media content. So, yeah. Um, gosh, uh, I, like, I like how you said, Ray, that um, like whatever else people were walking away from the talk from, like for you, it was about uh, recognizing, um, like, the different modes of, uh, of colonization and how important it is to, to start a, a de- destructuring these things and to, to tear them apart. Um, is this something that, you, that you've thought about before with, like, uh, like other, other uh, Disney incarnations like Mulan and Pocahontas? And, uh, or did this really... was. Uh, when you found out that Disney was going to create a Pacific, an authentic Pacific uh, uh, film, is that what really uh, sparked you? And it's not like I, I watch Disney at the industry. It's not like I follow it. It's not, I know um, through graduate school is when Disney started to become problematic. But it was just enough that that's it. The, the hook for me with, with uh, Moana is... A few years ago when it became clear from uh, talk here and there that it was going to feature canoes. That's the one. And I was actually dreading the film because um, I teach a course. I've been teaching a course since I taught here at UOG uh, called, it's actually called Sex on the Beach. (laughs) It's Sex on the Beach and it's a, it's a, it's a course that that examines how the Pacific's been represented in film, um, and and that's half of the course. The other half of the course is um, is um, how Pacific Islanders have uh, also produced films. And the question is is a question of continuity. To what extent now that Islanders have the camera and are producing films, to what extent are they breaking or continuing? Uh, problematic representations of the Pacific, right? And um, that verdict is still out. Being a Pacific Islander filmmaker does not guarantee you do the work better. Mm-hmm. In fact, I see some real shit stuff by Pacific Islanders. Um, on the other hand, most of the Pacific stuff is very conscious about getting things right or differently, or at least messing up with the conventions. Um, the, the idea, and I'm, I'm working to the answer, but the, the idea of uh, sex on the beach is not just, just wordplay. I've yet to see a film about the Pacific that doesn't have an obligatory love scene on a beach. That's required. And it's required because the Pacific, through this idea of Polynesia, is all about exoticism. It's all about... The, it's actually about what I call the tag team of exoticism and eroticism. 
you know they, they work together to to represent the Pacific as always available um, getaway for some to 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 redeem or to fix some kind of problem that the modern West has. There's no film in the Pacific that doesn't have that that char- the obligatory romance or sex scene on the beach, and and uh, and some some element of salvation for an afflicted West. For for most Pacific Islanders, that's what the Pacific is about. That's the that's what's called the received wisdom of the Pacific. It's a it's a stereotype, but it's it's a very um, it's one that has a lot of substance for the West, right? And so it's in the context of that that, that uh, we pay attention to things like not just the depiction of, of people, but um, I've, for very early on, I, because of my interest in canoes, I've, I've also watched carefully how canoes are represented in film. And we see a marked change in how film, uh, canoes are represented. So in many respects... Moana is is the, the not only the latest but the most sophisticated representation of canoes in the Pacific. Um, they took a lot of pains to authenticity. Those films are beautiful. I mean, those canoes are beautiful, right? But they're absolutely problematic. I, I didn't have a chance today to talk about the very specific and technical ways where where the like I said, the conditions of imagining seafaring, which come from this part of the world, were were um, elided, elided to tell an authentic story about canoes. That's like total bullshit, you know, and and. Uh, and so I was already dreading that 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 Disney was going to be dealing with the canoe. I should say, in the same regard, that in in some ways, everything that I'm saying about and taking on about Moana is like a practice run because you remember when uh, James Cameron came here to dive the Mariana Trench? He had a press conference afterwards, and he said two things that was very disturbing. One, you know. He, he depicted the, the Marianas Trench as the last frontier. That's the old colonial trope of exploration and crap. So, one, he's still stuck there. And we, that's not a surprise because if you watch um, Avatar, Avatar is fucking dances with wolves <laughs> yeah. and blue, blue face, you know. And and it's basically the hapless natives, nature, mystical, uh, saved by the white guy, yes. you know? and 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 so but so he he so he's already looking at the Pacific and the Marianas Trenches in the same old colonial trope of exploration, frontier, taming. That that's that's what America was all about, taming the wild frontier and its peoples and making it into civilization, yeah. right? Um, the second thing that he said was his big discovery was Micronesian navigators. And he went on to say that he was going to incorporate both this this aqua world and Micronesian navigator into his sequels. The sequels already, the, the second sequels already being, the trailers already out, 
but I haven't seen any indication of that. He said that one of the there's there's three sequels coming out, and, and I don't know when the thir- third and fourth are coming out, but the 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 um, one of them is going to, in his words, round out the arc of the Pandora. I think is right the, the name yeah. of the that, that world, and he said. So this is going to be a story about a blue aqua world, and navigators are going to f- figure prominently. After all, they're an ocean people, and they're colonized. right? So here's a story that's going to be... And, and I found out that he's also working with Disney. So here's, here's, where, here's, here's where the canoe is going to go from being uh, exotic backdrop with complete with stupid looks we see early films about the Pacific the canoe is really just a prop to give a sense of not authenticity but setting exotic setting in the last three four years canoes have become really important motifs in what's still at the end of the day the same kind of formulaic stuff that that we see you can see this in the, the descendants right where the the um, um, the um, um, burial at sea is 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 on a canoe. There, there. That's that's heavy stuff, right? And but but the Descendants is no different from any other film that is that that is in this case it's about healing a dysfunctional family, and and Hawaii serves as a back not just a backdrop but an important part of the story through the story of this 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 Howley who's really Hawaiian kind of thing right uh, t- you know you talk about fan- colonial fantasies yeah. of Howleys helping themselves to the island right so anyway the, the, the bottom line is that I've, it's, it's been pretty apparent that canoes are becoming more prominent and more substantive um, and that's not surprising because of the, the splash that the Polynesian Voyaging Society has meant over the last 40 years. Um, so it's, it's bound to have people notice and realize that, that there's something special around canoes, which of course there are, and navigation, and it's just a matter of time before it gets co-opted, right, for, for, for whatever heavy stuff. That was already, we saw that coming. Like I said today, I was also... Um, contacted pretty early on about about being a, a an expert in this and I just no 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 interest you know um, and so that's the hook with Moana but even then as I was dreading to see that I didn't want to get involved in the in in it because it was a Polynesian thing I also knew that people people were going to be working on that and I wanted to just you know, just watch how the Polynesians were dealing with that. Um, and there was three things that, that kind of brought me in one, and they all happened at the same time. The first was that trailer that I, I mentioned earlier, where the rock says, you know, I'm the, Maui's the greatest in all of the Pacific. That's, that's my first red flag. No, don't, don't speak for us, right? The, the, the second one was, um, was, um, Reading um, Tina Nata's, uh, I, I didn't know who she was, but I started reading her work, 
and she was she was saying some real sharp stuff about about um, um, uh, the environment and and indigeneity and uh, and then she started weighing in on her first entry in her blog was a total full on attack on Taika Waititi, basically calling him out like, who are you accountable to, basically right. And, and, and she was really sharp and she was making a connection between that and her still her strongest thing is the connection between those kinds of cultural representations through narrative and, and image and structural problems in the Pacific when you begin to make that connection it's no longer just a cartoon yeah. and there's the other weird thing about it is is that that idea of this is just a cartoon would be wielded against the critics when by people who were like totally into the film right and even describing this in in terms of like religious experience experience you know oh moana has mana mana is like you guys know what mana is in in, in polynesian the the equivalent in in micronesia i don't know uh, what the equivalent would be in chamorro in carolinian languages is manama Mana is life force. It's like the, when the missionaries came upon it, they recognized, they, they sort of used it to, um, they, trans, they associated it with God. You know, so uh, one of the most powerful uh, ideas and concepts around spirituality and power gets, you hear people talking about Moana containing mana. And if Moana contains mana, to criticize it is, is tantamount to criticizing God <laughs> or, or deep tradition. That's actually where some of the, we got the, the most heated pushback. It's like, what, are you dissing my, my mana? Yeah. Like, no, no. And I thought this was just Disney. But it gives you a sense, right, of how, how, how Disney how seriously they think that this is about. And it is serious, you know. I think there is something there is something about mana and manama when you see the likeness of, of a seafaring tradition. And there, there's something you said um, in, your, in your presentation. Um, when did the gold standard for cinema become, like, you being able to see yourself in that film, right? And so, in a way, like a... Like these people, Pacific people are looking for something to to latch onto in these movies, and that's problematic when it's imbued with uh, all sorts of colonial um, uh, structures. So you know that that's a really great point, and it also allows us to to deepen our understanding by 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 not dismissing. If it's important to not just dismiss it as a as a cartoon, it's also important to grant what's complicated about it for people and the the uh, the um, the keyword here is what is it that is making people invest and see themselves in this film right we've heard people dismiss those who really love Moana as those islanders who don't know enough about themselves, especially the the diaspora islanders, yeah. or islanders who are highly colonized, 
that they're so lost that that they they get so enamored when they see this amazing image that's it just it it taps into their sense of loss and their sense of romance right but but we need to also remember that the active participation in the film that allows Moana to claim cultural authenticity is coming from people in independent nations who are from their homes. Mm -hmm. For example, the other place where we were criticized for, for criticizing Moana was as if we were people who were away from our islands who didn't know the real cultures and were either just up on the ivory tower or so lost that we didn't realize that real Pacific Islanders with, with full-on knowledge of tattoo, canoes, etc., were actually informing Disney about this. So what that means is that this isn't just... It isn't simply a case of islanders who are lost and they're so they're so pathetic that a colonial representation makes them feel affirmed. It's also a case of islanders who are very steeped in their tradition, in fact so steeped and who are not in colonized places that my understanding is that the deepest investment in Moana by Samoans wasn't from American Samoa, it was from independent Samoa. So in other words, people who are so steeped in their traditions in independent places that they think they're above or exempt from colonialism. And so that they're not, they're not, we got it wrong. When, when I say col colonialism, they look at me and they say, you don't know what you're talking about, right? You're, you're actually... You're, you're actually denying our cultural agency, right? You see what I mean? So Moana is one of these things that at once appeals to people who you might think are lost and want to see this likeness of them, need it so badly that they, they cry when they see a brown skin with wavy hair on a canoe and say, that's my culture, right? But it also is driven by people who say, yeah, I'm brown skin, I got that kind of hair, and this is my, this is my canoe culture. That's authentic uh, tattoos. That's what a real Samoan village looks like. That's what, that, that's, that's, that, that's, that's why it's culturally authentic. Again, what I tried to point out again is is and your takeaway about generalizing and need for thinking critically is absolutely on point. How is it that that specific authentic tradition of that particular village in Samoa gets to stand for authenticity for the whole Pacific? You see what I mean? I'm, I'm actually making a pitch for the, the, the complexity of what's going on in Moana that is not just colonized, lost Pacific Islanders, but also Islanders who are actually recognized as having substantive mana to talk about these kinds of things. 
No less than Nainoa Thompson of the, of the Polynesian Voyaging Society gave his blessings to those who wanted to, to feature wayfinding. And his reasons, I can understand part of it. I, personally, this is going to be on record. I, I'm not, I, I, I think he should have known better. Especially someone who is, who you, you really want to get down and dirty about cultural authenticity. He has a master navigator status and title conferred to him by Mao P.I. Look, a, a title that is specifically from Polowan, even if Mao is from Sarawal. I know what I'm talking about here. Mao is actually. His lineage, his seafaring lineage, is from a very specific canoe house in Polowa, right? And that that title comes with tremendous amount of obligations and responsibilities. And Nainoa knows that. He knows that. He's deferential to Mao and all of that kind of stuff, right? I'm not saying he's being irresponsible, but I was disappointed because because in giving his blessings to Moana, Disney and Moana to go forward with, a, with incorporating into its narrative in a major way traditional seafaring and calling it wayfinding in, in the film it's called wayfinding he, he should have he should have been like so how are you going to use this wait, wayfinding it's, it's you're gonna you're go, you're going to depict this as ancient stuff, but wayfinding is what I produced from knowledge from Micronesia and the Bishop Planetarium, and that's actually a highly customized system that we created in the 1970s. That's one of the brilliant things about about Nainoa Thompson. Actually, he created a a powerful working form of navigation, right? That's the genius of him. That not only worked, but it was teachable, and others learned it, and it could be replicated. And that gave birth to this magnificent story of Polynesian revival. In the early days, like I said in my presentation, that was recognized explicitly as a hybrid system. Forty years later, now it's, it's understood what as a traditional ancient system. You see what I mean? You know, the, the, that's like now maybe maybe he was too busy. In fact, he was. I mean, he was involved in a worldwide tour. But and I don't want to rag on him. I mean, he's he's a master navigator. And Mao gave him a title. And traditionally, I don't have the status to question that. Right? But I also know on record that wayfinding is what they said it was. And that is what it is. And and we can actually articulate problems with what that means. I, I didn't get a chance to elaborate on exactly how an instrumental, technical, technological development that there's a lot of evidence to, to show that it, if there was an Austronesian seafaring system, 
it was also innovated and developed to a very high degree here in Micronesia by the Carolinians, right? And 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 and, uh, and that is a major part of what allowed those guys to make do their revival, and that gets erased when it becomes an ancient thing. You know, so so this is an example of 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 actually to come back to the point it's an example of how Moana is not just those lost people who are colonized but people who have formidable understandings you know but either didn't follow didn't hold Moana and Disney accountable to you know Surely, Nainoa and anybody else who's involved seriously in seafaring knows what's at stake here, yeah. and knows knows that that you know seafaring knowledge is is there's big stakes in that. I think there's so much big stakes in in, in, in seafaring to allow something like Disney to take control, and I'm really terrified, honestly. Uh, about what James Cameron's going to do, especially now that he's working with Disney. Any weakness in the story of seafaring, guarantee you they're going to, like wolves, pounce on that. I'm even to the point of sometimes being a little guarded about talking about this because they're going to be hearing that and reading that. I'm I fully believe that when Disney started to roll out the trailers and the Maui outfit and all that stuff ahead of time, they were testing the markets to see what kind of criticism that's going to come out. And I think we unwittingly played into that by, the, by showing our hands and, 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 and uh, um, um, giving them the opportunity to tweak. Like, for example, in the scene that shows... Uh, Maui coming out and saying, I'm the greatest in the film. He didn't, they took out the Pacific. But that's because we went right there and said, that's, that's wrong, right? So, so this is actually one of the ways that colonialism operates. Colonialism is not a static thing. It's a very dynamic thing. It's really dynamic, and it's, and it's cunning, right? And we have to, be, uh, we have to out-cun it. You know, we have to be out cunning, uh, and and uh, uh, you know we need as much help as we can. So, so, so the more, unfortunately, the more articulate and focused is your opposition, that also gives them the the materiality to develop more durable and dynamic ways to to get ahead of it. You know? Yeah, the the our Scottish friend in the audience, um, he asked. Uh, the, the last question that he ended with was um, um, something along the lines of how do we, should, should, we, should, we talk, should we be talking to Disney so that they can change their approach? And the question that was lingering in my mind was do we want them to change their approach? Do we want them to adapt? Because, I said something. Yeah. Yeah. I, that, uh, you know, um, we had a, a uh, at the Association for Social Anthropology meetings last month in, in Kauai, we our group actually organized a panel on Mana Moana that was all about leveling the criticisms to um, uh, to Disney and 
a lot of there was a handful of people who were Disney supporters, including part of that team, were there too. And so, so the in the every time we leveled one of those points, that I you know, they would re- retort, but this, but this, but this, but this, and at one point, um, the line came up. So, what about the opportunity to help them get it right, or you know? I finally couldn't deal with it anymore, and I just blurted out. I said, "You know what? Let them get it wrong. Let them bomb, and let everybody see just how stupid they are. Like, why? Why? Why do? You, why do you want to help them? You know? I, I. Well, but what is it? Are we natural, naturally hospitable?" people or you know to what extent is is this idea idea of islanders as loving adoring helping you know hospitable part of colonialism it is and then goes but there's also deep traditions of hospitality right Uh uh-huh but then that's also the um like how you were talking about hita the word hita and being inclusive and how how colonizers and settlers, how they could they could see that as a chance to be like, okay, well, oh, you guys... it's their culture to include yeah. us. So what about us? Yeah, that's that's an, a reappropriation of... Um, a misguided reappropriation of that term, and uh, it's an exploitation of this practice to suit their needs. So. And, and I'm not knocking the concept of Hita, right? I think it's really interesting that unlike the West where you have... where you have you know, this kind of generic we, you know, a lot of indigenous languages have a, a, a we that's about us and a we that doesn't include you, right? <laughs> you know, and, and when you use one over the other is highly contextual and, it, and, and also very purposive, right? Uh, but you know what? That's also how legal definitions of citizenship and civil rights work. So how come they get to have the pretense of total inclusion and not exclusivity? And, and, and how is it so easy for that system to read Chamorro notions of belonging as automatically racist? Yeah. That's sick. That's absolutely sick. Particularly when that system is the very system that introduced race and racialist thinking and exclusivity into notions of belonging through citizenship. But that's not a new story. That's not a new story. Right? So. Interesting. Oh, man. I don't know. when. Whenever I get into these talks, I can't help but feel like like extra paranoid and maybe we should be maybe we should be paranoid about the media that we consume and the media that's being fed to us um i want to talk about how earlier you said that uh there's like just really really just bad bad pacific content by pacific creators that um potentially uh just um there are continuities of uh colonizer imposed uh tropes and stuff like um so I'm, I'm thinking automatically of uh, Shadows in the Water, that new novel. Are you guys familiar? No? So, oh, okay. Well, there, there's a, a, a local author, Joan Awa, <clears throat> who, who wrote um, Shadows in the Water. And um, 
when I when it was coming out, like the press was coming out, and um, the the back page, uh, the synopsis came out, and um, I was just so sickened. Um, it, so it takes place in in uh, the heat of World War II on Guam, and so it's this uh, this Chamorro girl who, you know, like something like she 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 finds um, a marine who's like hiding out in the jungles, and like he like. It's so romanticized, and it has that that uh, white savior um, trope that we're so used to seeing in in um, Pacific literature, and it's it's a continuity. And um, she's someone from our generation, I think. And I wouldn't like for me. I like to think of our generation as uh, being uh, progressive and uh, actually having taken the process, taken the steps to to deconstruct um, uh, whatever we've been told, but. It's a, it's a continuity, and it's coming from her. It's coming from a Pacific woman, and especially from mainstream uh, local mainstream media, they're so quick to jump on those things as successes. Like, oh, here's this young successful woman who wrote this book. But if we're giving it that much attention and that much uh, legitimacy, like, what's it doing to the psyche? You let know? me. I mean, let me affirm that. So, so, so everybody gets excited about someone writing a book or producing a film. I mean, let's just examine that, right? There's a lot of crappy books. Yeah. <laughs> why, why should writing a book be automatically celebrated? Well, one reason is because, yeah, you know, natives are not supposed to be associated with books. And so if a native writes a book, that must be in a major accomplishment. And in a way it is, right? But like, geez, read, the, read it first. Right? <laughs> or film. Yeah. Make a film, awesome. Most of the films are crap. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's mind boggling that Disney would be so celebrated because really, really, since when did Disney like be the the go to to have like a real sense of what an islander is. Yeah, when? Yeah. Yeah. Here's the biggest irony, you know. There's no natives anywhere at any time that were stupid, savage, that didn't, weren't writing, that weren't producing like amazing stuff. And and all natives have also done really stupid stuff. Yeah. <clears throat> because they've been long denigrated, anything that a native does is, is good. Or any positive attention is awesome. I mean, you know, at, at some points, at some point, this is also about, you know, a, a consistent, con continuous process of, of, uh, of striving to regain a, a, a uh, some semblance of a humanity that has never been acknowledged, right? And and you know that's not that's that's like that that's actually one of the the worst sins of colonialism is to to set the bar really low, and so <laughs> you know, and so. That to to get to that is already a highly romanticized, valorized thing. You know, 
the limits with that, of course, is that is that um, getting and hitting the point of excellence for how colonialism defines humanity is also not all that high. You know what I mean? Because indigenous people also have much older and more diverse ways of defining humanness. Right? And so you can... Achieving excellence in that system as a measure of your humanity it's, it's still it's still not hitting the, 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 the radically different ways that indigenous people have built human civilizations on very different terms so so you know, it's still mind-boggling that, that, that the standard for achievement and celebration and, and that kind of stuff that's, that's often uh, uh, even informing decolonization processes is still one that is set against, in a system that, that has, you know, really remarkably low... I, or, or constrained uh, ideas about humanness. Again, that's that about the box, you know? We're, we're boxed in. We're boxed in at every turn by the conventions of, of, of uh, whether it's civil society, exclusion, economic development, cultural fulfillment, almost everything, almost everything... You know, it's always within, contained within the language and discourse of that system. It, but it doesn't mean that we're we're in, inherently and necessarily locked in. You know, and we need to do more, more hard analytical work to to figure those kinds of things out. I, I think, um, you know. Um, that's what keeps me in the game with indigenous studies. I, I, when I first started as a, as a, in, in academia, and and I'm a very ambivalent academic and a very hesitant one. And I didn't go to grad school to become an an academic. And like I said, in it might sound way off, but in 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 a real way, I'm still trying to. I don't know what I want to major in. But, and I'm not just saying that because it's, it's cute or coy, right? I don't want to know what I want to major in because I don't know where that one place is where, where I can really, where I hit my stride, where I can commit all my, my energies to doing, you know? History? Uh, history is really important, but so is politics. So is culture. So is... So is technology. So is you know, and so and so the kind of act. If I remained in academia, it's because I was very fortunate to be in, to have gone through school and 
and uh, been introduced to uh, interdisciplinary studies. I was really fortunate to, I applied only to one grad school to go to, to school. And this is the God honest truth. If I didn't get into that grad school that I went to, I would have either gone back here and looked for a way to go learn how to build canoes and sail it, because because by that time I was exposed to it, or I would have come back and 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 been work for GovGuam or possibly a PE coach, because those were the things I knew, you know, and and. Um, and I was able to, but I, but I was lucky to have gone to an interdisciplinary doctoral program that required that 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 you do something that was uh, in at least three disciplines, you know. So, um, and I was lucky to land jobs that allowed me to to um, to actually try to figure out how to simultaneously talk about all these different things according to the rigors of these different disciplines you know so but when I first started out you go to an academic conference this was for the first three four five years six years including as a graduate student you go to a conference you look at the the program to find anything dealing with a native from anywhere in the world you're not even looking for other natives you're just looking for a top a paper Right, then, then you look for other natives. Right, maybe you see someone far off and say, that, that guy looks like a native. That they you know. Um, today, we have professional associations, academic associations of native scholars, right, that are from all over the world, and we and. Much of what I, the things I say, are the kinds of things we talk about, and the kinds of th- that that uh, that anthology I, I I I pointed to, that comes out of almost a decade now of these kinds of conferences, and was close. We see undergraduate students, graduate students already presenting at these things, right? It's we don't we don't need non-native historians, anthropologists, political scientists to be telling us how to think about, you know. Uh, I can back up a lot of the things I'm talking about in, in terms of an, an emergent indigenous political theory, right? Indi- emergent anthro- indigenous anthropology, indigenous histor- history, and and if you were at the talk at UOG I gave, the, one of the signature marks of that kind of scholarship, besides academic training, right, in the tools of the discipline, literature, political science, history, archival work, ethnography, uh, survey instrumentations, right? In, in addition to that, the signature marks of indigenous studies that centers indigeneity, right? Is work that is what Glenn Coulthard calls grounded normativities. The work of the hands-on dirty work of food sovereignty, of cultural revitalization, of, of dance, martial arts, chanting, all of that. Those are the stuff that people did, and that becomes the, the ground for produ- producing new knowledge that's academic. So Much of my criticism is coming from that. So I can say, for example, 
I can, I can speak authoritatively and critically about how the canoe is positioned and navigation is positioned in something like Moana mm-hmm. because I've got 20 years of the grunt work with canoes and learning about navigation from Polowa navigators. Wow. So in a sense, what you're saying is in order to, the, the responsibility of being an indigenous scholar is you actually have to get out, get out there and get your hands dirty yes. and know about these things. Yes. Yeah. So, and for, for example, um, I'm at University of Minnesota, right? Why are you out there? You're so far away. You're so disconnected. That's true. I, I was caught with my pants down the other day. question was asked of me that required very technical, specific, grounded answers around the legal case and how my work had to do with that. And I, I didn't read the, 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 the ruling. And I wasn't, I'd been out of touch with the local politics here to, so that my answer wasn't as, as on point and as technical as it should be. That's a measure of how far I've been away from here, right? On the other hand, uh, at University of Minnesota, I'm working with Ojibwe folks. I'm, I'm, there's a big Chukis community in, in Minnesota. They're, they're going, because of the bad stigma that, that is attached to Chukis communities, these guys are working really hard to be model neighbors to their white neighbors. And when I meet them, I sound like, five miles down the road is an Indian reservation. Why, how come you guys are not working as hard to... I mean, you're on their land. Yeah. Right. So the work, the work that we're doing, actually, Tina and I, actually, in, 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 in Minnesota, is we're building canoes there. Nice. We're, we're building, uh, you know, the, 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 that Chukis group wants to build an outrigger canoe. I just, just before coming in here, I was talking to Nash about what's their latest work and what's the possibility that they might be able to send someone over to build an outrigger canoe with those guys. I, I, I don't have the means to do it by myself. I don't profess to be a, a canoe builder, right? Um, but, you know, I, 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 can, I can do it, you know, but not as well as other people can, right? And so what we're doing there, Native Studies. If I'm going to be doing Pacific Island Studies and, uh, that centers indigeneity, and I'm going to be working with other islanders in Minnesota. Of There's a lot, right? You can be sure it's going to have to be actively involved with the indigenous people of that space. Indigeneity, right? The claims and conditions of ab- aboriginal people to specific places. That's the groundwork of, of this kind of stuff. When you locate yourself in the indigenous local, as opposed to just the generic local, Right, these these issues of the legal ruling, you know, all of these begin to look very different and very clear. So, you know, I could I could articulate these things because everywhere I've gone, I've I've had no option but to try to get to know the local natives, what's their story, you know. And in many respects, it's a continuation of, of ha- having to grow up here as a non-Chamorro in Chamorro land. And I didn't get any of, um, I didn't only not get any of this 
didn't, not only didn't understand it, I also had a negative view about it. You know. So, so now you've had you've had a little bit of time. Um, I'm sure you've been quite busy since uh, yesterday and today. Yeah, yeah. But um, have you thought more about the the ruling? And um, I still hadn't didn't have a chance to read it, but uh, but but the more I did think a lot about about, you know, I think in in generalities, I think uh, it's 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 still everything I've heard from talking to people is only confirming. It's only confirming. There's nothing really new here. The, the, uh, there's a lot more information, and this has all the complexities of the Moana stuff, yeah. right? Chamorro judge, right? There's lots of Chamorros who celebrate that ruling. There's a lot of there's probably more non-Chamorros who are happy about that, but we also know a lot of non-Chamorros who don't support it, right? Yeah. Um, we need to know what the inside stories are. Uh, we need to know what were, I heard little bits and pieces of this, what were things, what were conditions and factors that contributed to that? Right? What were missteps by the independence people or Gov Guam? Right? To, ha, ha, what, what about what is it about Chamorro self-determination scares people? You know? Uh, so, and what, what, what role do Chamorros have in, in that? Right? At the same time, what, what, you know, maybe there's, maybe there's also a lot of Chamorros who are afraid of what would happen if Chamorros had that kind of power. I remember when when I was still very much connected to the ground here and involved with the folks who were with OPIR and that kind of stuff, um, there was there had always been a kind of um, talk around an ambivalence about if it was only a Chamorro vote, do you include Chamorros from the states? And yes or no, and what's the pros and cons about that, right? Um, you know, those kinds of questions are, are, are as important, but, you know, you mentioned being paranoid because of how this system operates, too, and that's a very real thing. How can you discuss the difficult issues internally when it's, you know, the island is not exactly a safe space for, for, for doing that because you have people who will seize on that you know, for um, for um, an effort to weaken it or to strengthen their claims, you know. So, um, you know, I, I I don't know if it if it came off a bit too nonchalantly or too smugly when I said I wasn't surprised at the ruling, but I wasn't surprised because, uh, you know, assuming that it was on the up and up all the way, how can you expect a federal judge of any race who's sworn to 
protect the laws of the United States and its particular ideas uh, that are largely uh, hostile to Native peoples. How, how, how can you expect, you know, since, since when did the master's tools dismantle the master's house, you know, I mean, it's a little more complicated than that, but that 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 kind of captures a little bit of that non-surprise, right? I also think, and I said this the other day, that that as important as the courts are, there's also politics, and there's a political struggle, right? And that political struggle has to engage the courts, the legal system, because of because of what that means in American society. But at, cert- at a certain point, there's also, look, the folks at Standing Rock protecting the waters against the, the, the Dakota Access Pipeline, they're, they're, they're you know, they, they've sort of disbanded for the moment. There's, a, understand, a court case going on, but they're not going to put all their chips on that, Right. And at what point does do do you keep looking for dealing with uh, the question of political status and sovereignty within the American political system? You know. So, but then again, what are other means? That that's, but that's the that's the question of that's the question that everybody has to deal with. You know? There, there's a there's a picture going around on Facebook right now um, by the Independence Independence Task Force, uh, and um, it shows the the federal courthouse, and then there's text that reads uh, a process of decolonization where the colonized have to follow the rules of the colonizer is the opposite of decolonization, and so I guess there we have to we have to come to terms with our colonization as a people, and then. Um, uh, create our own way of, of dealing with this, and that's that's internationally recognized, maybe, and yeah. But um, so we have a and possibly not, mm-hmm. possibly not recognized, possibly by, not necessarily recognized in the international mm. sphere. I mean, that opens up a whole nother. If it opens up possibilities, it also it also uh, it also represents a whole other set of constraints as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have a, a little fan group. We're all we're all fanboys <laughs> on some <laughs> level. But uh, I have here uh, Ray uh, Elion Guerrero and Brandon Cobb. And um, you guys have been uh, sitting here patiently. Um, do you guys have any questions you want to ask Vince before we wrap okay. up? We're at about an hour. So, Ed, you want to jump on the mic? Really yeah, sure. Well, I just have it. So if I heard you and interpreted you correctly, you said there's the the loco and then there's the loco who is uh, infested in the land or who is part of the land and that fits with the aborigine, the indigeneity, right? Yeah. Right. So I think you can make a distinction between local and 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 uh, the indigenous local. Right. Okay. Right. Right. And how would one then make that distinction? 
like what would be the best course should it be like a law that would you know like for example the native inhabitant definition here on guam that was deemed to be racist you know because it defined it by also blood you think that what why do you do you find that definition of native inhabitant problematic well i don't think the definition of native inhabitant in and of itself nor even um as it's identified in the um in in um the organic act right or even in the uh how it was used for the purposes of uh of the plebiscite and and uh um in and of itself this racist i don't i don't accept that 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 interpretation um i think it's actually the reverse it's it's a it's a standard of civil rights that has a clear history of race and racialized thinking particularly in relation to native peoples that is now getting to call the shots about what's racist and what is racist and what's racist was not racist right that's the biggest irony of all of this Chamorro conventions of who belongs and who doesn't that's the measure of the indigenous local in this case the analytic concept of indigeneity is abstract but it's m- meant to uh to be informed by the indigenous l- local indigeneity the indigenous people of that specific locality in this case is is chamorro right and and the standard when you're talking about principles of self-determination and sovereignty and these are problematic terms but they're still the available terms that we have right now there's some luggage and baggage connected to those terms owing to rights discourses that are just one step away from civil rights discourses in modern nation states like the United States still right still the rights discourse around sovereignty and self-determination when it's associated with indigeneity chamorro self-determination as opposed to guam self-determination because guam is in, in, as under as a territory of the united states is a system that opens it up to non-chamorros right in a circumscribed form of citizenship actually that's that's also one of the hypocritical things here the political system that we have and the laws that operate in them are predicated on racialized ideas about this place the doctrine of territorial incorporation that applies the extent to which the constitution applies to this island and the bill of rights 
that either gives power to the Constitution or to the federal government. Either way, Chamorros don't have power over either of those two, right? The basis for that application that that gives the court standing to rule, to, to say that Chamorro self-determination is racist, that is predicated in, in, in its application to this island on, on two things, race, racial, the, the, the race of the people here, non-Anglo, right, and non-contiguity. The other, the other part of this, of this, the the formula that people don't talk about, but the 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 particular way that the Constitution and the congressional power applies to this territory has to do with residual ideas about the race of the, the inhabitants here, and the fact that it's not continental. Both of those are highly problematic. In the case of the in, in the case of non-contiguity, there's this natural assumption that the continental United States belongs to the United States. That erases the indigenous people of the United States, right? The, the other racial cons, race racial and racist consideration of the of underlying the, the 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 insular cases and the doctrine of territory incorporation to the extent that it, it shapes the application of American law on the island, of course, is the fact that that Guam was understood as semi-civilized people, both native and tainted by Spanish colonialism. And so if you applied, you had to regulate the applicability of the Constitution to, to Guam because such a people would taint the purity of American democracy. That system is still in place, and 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 uh, and and that's the hypocrisy of that system. Looking at this indigenous system that has its own understandings of who belongs and who doesn't, that goes through this island thousands of years before that that system, right? Uh, but that's the nature of, of the, 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 the movement, is that the movement is saying that system should have the right to decide what its political future should look like and on what terms, Un, unimpeded by other, you know. So you're boxed in already by, by that kind of thing. That, so, but to get back to your, your, your question, that's... The, the distinction between a local under the American flag and the indigenous local is firmly on what Chamorro culture defines as who's, who's Chamorro and who's not. And that's genealogical. And one of the best things that's coming out of Native Studies is, is finer finer analysis of the distinction between indigenous genealogy and even blood. There's a woman named Kim Tallbear whose work is on the whole phenomenon of relying of tribal governments relying on genomic tests to, to determine identity and belonging, right? 
she insists that there's in Indian country you got blood talk how native people talk about blood that is not the same as biological determinations of blood and genetics but think about it yeah blood to talk about blood is not simply the same as blood quantum it's not think of all the different cultural meanings of blood To talk about blood and genealogy and lineage in terms of biology and, and uh, I'll even say the, the good biologists will say that's an outdated idea of biology, right? But still, to talk about genealogy and blood in terms of genetics and biology as, under, as, as race and racialized thinking understands it, that's a... That's an example, not just of being boxed in, but of a very low standard. You see what I mean? Yes. A very low standard about what it means to be a human in indigenous terms. In this case, like I said, I've lived here long enough to know that I have less, as a non-Chamorro, I have less to fear about Chamorro ideas about who belongs and who doesn't. I have less to fear about what's the terms? Hita and Ham? Yeah, Hami. Right? The inclusive and exclusive. I have less to fear about those two than about universal ideas about civil rights under the Constitution of the United States. Where I get afraid is when indigenous notions of blood and genealogy get conflated with racialized discourses. You see that? It was colonialism that defined native ideas about genealogy, blood, and membership and identity on racial terms. And unfortunately, we have a history. Talk. You want to talk about complicity? Unfortunately, we have a history of natives buying into that. Would you say that that is just an adaption, a change in the culture by yeah, sure. indigenous agencies? Sure. So. Most of the time it's unwitting. But who thinks about these things like this? Well, purposeful native studies thinks about these things because they're having to do that as a matter of when, when Indian tribes now rely on genetic kits to determine who gets to be a member and who doesn't, or when they continue blood quantum, right? These are highly contested political processes within Indian country. Right? It's one of the benefits of comparative native studies. This might be a selfish, uh, selfish question, um, but um, is no, it inclusive or exclusive? <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, inclusive of all of us. But um, so, so I'm at a point now. I'll where, decide um, if it's racist. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> so, so um, I'm I'm submitting my well, I'm defending my thesis next month, um, and uh, I'm at a point now where 
I'm, I started writing up a research proposal for uh, PhD programs in New Zealand. How do I know if I'm getting into a program that, uh, even, though, even though it doesn't say native or indigenous in it, how do I know it's a program where, as a native person, I can thrive and I can, I can pursue? Tell me first what program it is, I'll tell you. <laughs> so there's a couple. So at, at Otago, in there's... Waikato. Uh-huh. So, Otago. Otago, Otago. So Dunedin. Yeah. So there's the, uh, the Peace and Conflict Studies, um, one that I'm looking into, um, then the Media and Indigenous Studies, and um, I think there's also a rhetoric program or something like that. But um, why, why Otago? Sylvia Frayne convinced me. And uh, one of the things is I have a five-year-old daughter, and of course the, the Commonwealth system is only three years long, totally research-based as opposed to an American system. And why not Waikato or Auckland? Uh, why not? Uh, I've also looked at Auckland, but yeah. So, I mean, that's just one of the questions I had. So, uh, what's been what I've loved about um, the program at UOG, the English program, is they've encouraged me to explore uh, Pacific uh, uh, geared courses. And Why not University of Minnesota? <laughs> it never occurred to me, and like like you said, it, it just it just felt so far, you know, just um, conceptually. You learn how to build canoes there. Yeah, I would actually love that. So, so no, look seriously. Um, New Zealand is, would be a great place to go because uh, the, the, the Commonwealth system it, it, uh, allows you to, to do the work a lot quicker. There's pros and cons. There's pros and cons there. If you're, if you're doing your work independently and you're allowed to go quicker, there's also something to be said about the American system that, that puts a heavy emphasis on seminars. And I can tell you that that I don't think I'd be where I am if I didn't have seminars with the kinds of classmates I had because because how I got into that program when I when I met the caliber of thinkers who were also accepted like I think I was I, I really think I was accepted because they needed they needed <laughs> So, you know, I, I, I hope uh, uh, my former mentor doesn't uh, hear this, but he said, he, it slipped out of his mouth once where he said, we got a good deal out of Vince because, A, he's a person of color, in other words, minority, uh, and, and this, is, this, this, this opened my eyes to... Uh, what was effed up about affirmative action, though I'm not going to go and say it, 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 it's uh, reverse discrimination. It wasn't. But affirmative action also has a, 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 a really ugly side um, when you realize how it was also used by liberal white people uh, in ways that did not do what it was supposed to do. That's one. But I don't... You know, I w I'm a little paranoid now because I don't want to assist those people who want to do away with with things like that. Yeah. But the other the other deal they got out of me was I was also from overseas, so I was also a foreign student. You know, so anyway, anyway. But the the, the point was was uh, that the seminar format with amazing classmates that's got to be one of the most important places where I developed intellectually. 
I may not have been able to do that in the Commonwealth system where you just, you know, you, you do your independent work and, and move. On the other hand, that might be the, the place. In, 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 in New Zealand in particular, it, New Zealand is, is an exciting place because there, discourses about indigeneity are really, really, really well developed. They're very well developed because, and, and they're very, they're very, um, they're highly developed because indigeneity there does, you're a native, that doesn't mean, you know, when they say Tangata Fenua, for example, right? That doesn't mean any Maori. It means the, 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 the people from a very specific place that gives them not only the standing to say certain things about that place, the mana, for example, right? But it also comes with all the obligations. This is what Hawaiians call kuleana. <coughs> when you know your place and, and the responsibilities that that place demands of you, right? You also know that it's that much harder for people like Davis to insist upon having a stance because he doesn't, because he's not from this place. Those kinds of discourses are very, very finely developed in New Zealand. You know what I mean? Uh, so, so consequently, I think that their level of native studies is actually really sharp and, and runs really deep and very substantive. You know. Um, and you'll the 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 other thing that's going to be awesome for you is you're going to get to see an entirely different kind of. You can see how colonialism operates there. And you're going to see how, not just how indigeneity works, but very precise forms according to the different tribal groups. And, you know, and, and not only just the tribal groups, but how it works at, at even finer levels, the, the hapu level, the iwi level, that, that kind of stuff. That you're going to get, you know, I've learned tremendous amount from Maori's colleagues and stuff like that. Um, I, I I asked why not Waikato because Waikato has, has is 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 uh, besides knowing a lot of people there they they, they also are developing uh, global comparative indigenous studies alongside with Maori studies alongside with Pacific studies think about that. Maori studies, that's like having Chamorro studies. Then Pacific studies, that's like having Micronesian studies except by Pacific Islanders. <laughs> and then Native studies. We don't have Native studies at UOG. We have Chamorro studies. But Chamorro's Native... But Native Studies is also an attempt to understand the larger story of Natives elsewhere for, for what that can, for what the value of putting them together can do. There's two models of comparative study. One case study here, case study there, and you do all the work to understand that and then to see what, how they compare and contrast. Another more creative form of comparative studies is not doing that, but saying, Maori, Chamorro, 
put them side by side and see what comes out of that, that creative juxtaposition. So you're going to be able to have that kind of stuff yeah. there, you know. Uh, so, so. So can I put you on my references when I apply to a white culture? <laughs> sure, sure, totally. But uh, I, I have to tell you that, that uh, Otago also recently uh, basically terminated the position of one of the Pacific historians. A lot of us uh, uh, wrote in support of that and criticized them. Uh, the, 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 the person who made that decision, unfortunately, is a historian who's... I won't call him a, a close friend of mine, but I, I'm on good terms with him. He even brought me out to New Zealand, and I, I um, um, uh, respect his work very much, except I also uh, said some critical stuff about that decision by a historian of colonialism, of all things, terminating a Pacific history position. So, like, I might be a liability if you put my name there. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, you may want to think twice about that. All right, we'll do. <laughs> oh, man. Awesome. Uh, Ray, did you have anything you wanted to ask? Or? Uh, yeah, I know we're, we're almost out of time. Yeah. Uh, you know, I... S- I'm good, by the way, you guys, so... <laughs> um, Hungry, but good. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yesterday, I didn't get to finish your full talk at EOG, but I caught uh, like 70% of it. But um, from what I did here, there was a big uh, emphasis on differentiating between inclusive and exclusivity. And then uh, that was kind of a theme today. Yeah. And that's even the platform which you presented is HITA. Yeah. And um, it's also the kind of heavy hand that's going uh, in this past ruling, the we the people of the United States. So it's a very kind of, it's a reoccurring theme, I guess you could say, in Mess Tomorrow, which is celebrating we the Chamorro people. Uh, so I just think that's very interesting. And I just wonder um, if if kind of a Chamorro language and the multiple uses of the we and uh, Chamorro values and customs and therefore, if that was like perfect you know, like recipes for exploitation, and uh, uh, just thinking out loud. Not necessarily a question, but um, it's just as kind of thing. I'm just kind of uh, processing it all at the moment. You know, I'm running with you. I'm totally running with you. That the that the the depth and strength of native stuff also could be the the point that you're most vulnerable because especially if it's co-opted you know especially when it's co-opted then that that process of co-optation you know takes it's mana so I don't I really wish we knew what a close tomorrow word version would be but um, and I know some people uh, offer some possible possibilities you know uh, but um, but um, you know that that's I guess I wanted to affirm that that, that that situation but it's also it's also important to not give power of any form but especially colonial power in its multiple forms more power than it has you know 
don't don't give it more power than it's it has. But I don't know how how automatically how to do that. So sorry about that. <laughs> you know, um, but the um, I just I just recently published a, a, an essay that I'm I'm eager and anxious to find to hear what people have to say about it. If you guys read it and give me feedback, I'd love to hear that. It it it, it was first manifest in, in the my final chapter in the repositioning the missionary around the competing ideas about matapping. But I, I worked it I developed that more fully actually as a talk uh, to UOG a few years ago. Uh, and and it was finally published just uh, just last year, and it has to do with an interest. It, it it began with with these different and competing definitions of matapping. That when when placed within the context of other definitions of matapping across just a small corner of, of Austronesia, vernaculars in in the Philippines, for example, there is there is this really interesting feature where across seven instances of the word matapang pronounced slightly different but I'm convinced they're the same they're cognates right some people don't accept that matapang is a, a cognate of matapang in the Philippines they think it's really uh, tapangi for example even then right across seven instances, and we can find more across Indonesia, Malagasy, we can find the equivalents of matapeng in Polynesia as well. I don't know what they are, but but in this corridor, this Philippine Sea corridor, where we know that there was a lot of traffic with canoes, right, we have at least seven instances of matapeng that get this means at least three different attributes and they're diametrically opposite. In other words, if I can state it abstractly, right? Matapping on in terms of a characteristic feature like brave for Tagalog uh, also has been glossed as cowardly here specifically in relation to San Vitoris, right? One matapeng means brave, the other means coward. In, in terms of taste, the other definition of matapeng in Chamorro has to do with taste, which one person, the best definition I've heard from one person, Polly Scott, the late Monsignor Oscar Luan, Cavo said neither this nor that. It has to do with taste. When you expect a certain flavor, here's a nice thing about, here's a smell thing. Right? When you expect to taste something, but it's not it. It's not bland. It's not, but it's neither this nor that. Okay? That's taste. Matapeng with taste. In another dialect in the Philippines, there is a matapping that has to do with taste. 
and it means pungent. There's a third definition of matapeng offered by Rosa Palomo. Not, she says, possibly an entirely different um, lex lexical item from tapangi, to purify, right? To purify. She surmises that that's why matapeng was called matapeng, because he, has, he was actually baptized before. Okay, I can, I can run with that. I don't have the authority to say she's wrong. In another dialect in the Philippines, just from the other two cases, what do you think matapeng means with respect? Not yeah, how, how, what, give me another, give me, muddied. Muddied? Actually, Rosa Palomo is actually very precise. She said, to purify with water, as in baptize. Right? This one is muddied water. Let me repeat it in abstract terms. The topping, when you spread, the, when you open the, the aperture, the frame, to Austronesia, and just one small corridor of Austronesian languages, Matapeng means A and not A. Right? And you can, and, and I actually draw this out even further. When it means neither this nor that, something that means neither this nor that can also mean none of the above. And if something is none of the above, it could also mean anything. Right? Or nothing, right? If you just continue to extend the logics, right, yeah. right. And if something is is neither this nor that, and also possibly uh, nothing, uh, you know, there is a temporal, a, a spatial and temporal zone where it also suggests it could be also uh, nowhere, you know, or everywhere. Now, I do a better job of, of laying that out. It, it didn't really sound right the way I said that. It looked like there were some breaks there. But so, matapeng, right, in terms of Austronesian, has, has that kind of capacity. It has that kind of, it, 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 you know, uh, I refer to this as in, an indigenous penchant for discursive play for meaning multiplication which comes in really handy when you're up against a system that's trying to arrest meaning right yeah so 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 we know the idea the, the, the idea that around in discursive flourish is important because we also know it's actually a stereotype to say that colonizers were not interested in vernaculars. San Vitoris was very interested in the vernacular because he wanted to proselytize in it, right? But, but in, in the interest in vernaculars, we, we learned this from studies about the history of conversion in the Philippines and 
and the role of language and translation in this and the and how how Spanish Empire through conversion worked at the level of language but was also frustrated by indigenous vernacular practices including uh, th their tendency to play with language in ways that frustrated the, the missionaries attempt to have control over the vernacular and they had to have control over the vernacular because if you're teaching about God or the Blessed Mother or saints you had to have control over the meaning lest they say they're worshiping God but they're worshiping another spirit so you see what I mean right. and it's actually for that reason that missionaries as much as they used vernaculars for certain ideas they insisted on Latin Dios right God don't you ever use a native word for God because you risk, you risk losing control over the idea of God right but the fact is to the extent that they used the vernacular for anything the reality is they always took a risk losing control because it was in the vernacular how could they guarantee right that 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 when what they were trying to teach was run through the vernacular that they knew exactly what the native was believing or even what they meant you see what i mean so that that gives us the 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 the, the, the to me that gives us the uh, the potential for how language can frustrate colonial discourse this is why I think, and I said this the other day, the sooner we get to the point where you're in control of the discourse around meaning and you don't give them the means for building a case against it, right? It doesn't mean you're going to succeed, but you can forestall the extent to which they can use what you said about native inhabitants in a way that's that 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 works against you right which is how i understand uh, the decision came down it was a kind of selective look at how has this been understood locally here in ways that's damaging yeah. Yeah. right which is actually a very peculiar way to, to you know, it's very it's possible that, that Julianne, well, maybe we shouldn't say anything right now. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Don't show your hand. Don't show your hand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't show your hand. No. <laughs> Man, well, this is great. Um, they're about to close up here at the, uh, the Guam Museum coffee shop, but uh, this is really great um i don't know if you guys caught that but vince diaz asked us for our feedback so <laughs> that was pretty awesome and um also i think i'm going to change my name to uh, matopping x so <laughs> so yeah man thank you so much for taking the time out. you guys man yeah. you're man such an inspiration i'm a fan i'm a fan yeah. <laughs> 
such an inspiration for um, Pacific scholars, writers, um, anyone out there. Um, yeah, thank you so much. Thanks. Fenatsu is created by the Media Committee of Independent Guahan. Independent Guahan's mission is to empower the Chamorro people to reclaim their sovereignty as a nation. Inspired by the strength of their ancestors and with the love for future generations, they seek to educate and unify all who call Guam home in order to build a sustainable and prosperous independent future. Feedback and questions can be sent to independentguahan at gmail.com, all one word. For more information, head to www.independentguahan.com or look for us on Facebook and Instagram. Ihinengainga Independent Guahan, Araba ina fanmatakna yaman tomoru, Pawatatuli tapti idira tota komo unashon, Gihilutano. Gini minet good niha yamanyanata, Dani guinezata nui famago umta motna, Ina keke fanmanungo, Dana keke fanet don todu itoto siha, Nimanyasaga gi ininatano, Pawatana let fetna ida guahan, ni todu inina senyata, Kosiki senyata fan latla maulik motna. Fanatsu, hita latmon.